Probably the most famous sermon that was ever preached in America was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. He preached that at Enfield, Connecticut on July 8, 1741. And Edwards was a substitute preacher that day in a neighboring town near his hometown. And he delivered his sermon in an unrestrained yet earnest monotone, looking up at occasion at the back of the room at a fixed point. And folks in the congregation started weeping and wailing and falling down on their knees in repentance. They were calling out to God to save them. And Edwards had to stop his sermon on several times and caution people, get a hold of yourselves, people. But they were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. And Edwards' sermon was quickly printed in tract form and it spread throughout all the colonies. God used that sermon like few others. And even to this day, Jonathan Edwards, who is greatly used of God because of his preaching and the great awakening in our country, he is still considered to be the greatest American theologian. But Edwards' sermon was controversial at the time. It's still controversial today because to say that the concept of God's wrath, God's anger, is out of sync with our modern world. And that just states the obvious. Pastor Stephen Cole put it this way, even, even many who claim to be evangelicals object to and minimize any mention of God's wrath. They may say that they believe it because it's in the Bible, but they're embarrassed by it. He says, I've even heard of professing Christians who say, I believe in God of love, not a God of wrath. Sometimes such people ignorantly imply that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, but by the New Testament, he mellowed out to be such a nice old guy. I've been told that Jesus was always loving and never judgmental. I always want to ask such people, when was the last time you actually read the New Testament? Many seeker churches have drawn huge crowds by never mentioning sin and judgment and instead focusing on the more positive aspects of the gospel. God loves you. He offers you an abundant life full of peace, joy, and love. He will help you with your problems. He wants you to be happy. Won't you invite him into your heart? But there's no mention of a holy God who is justified in his wrath against sinners. We bought into the old liberal message which theologian Richard Niebuhr once described. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. The controversy has even entered into the songs that we sing in worship. This morning for opening hymn we sang In Christ Alone. Sounds like an old hymn, doesn't it? It was written in 2001. The song was immediately popular in worship and has consistently been listed in the top ten worship songs sung in churches year after year after church. In England, after its release, for over a decade, it was the number one song sung in worship in England. In Christ alone has been called the amazing grace of our generation. If you paid attention to the words that we sang this morning, you see how wonderful, how biblical it is. But in 2013, the song made headlines for its references to the wrath of God. A hymn committee with the Presbyterian Church USA wanted to add the song to their hymnal. 
But in doing so, because they'd sang the words changed in another hymnal, which was done without the permission of the, the writers of the song, the, the committee requested permission from the song's writers to change the words. The writers were Stuart Townend and Keith Getty because they wanted to print an altered version of the hymn's lyrics, changing, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, they wanted to change that till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They wanted to change from wrath to love. Even though, as I noticed in the first verse today, there's all kinds of stuff about the love of God in the hymn, but it was the wrath of God that was satisfied. And so the songwriters rejected the proposed change, and as a result, the hymn committee voted to bar the hymn from their hymnals. The committee said that the idea of God's wrath would have been a negative effect on the hymnal's ability to form the faith of coming generations. Turn once again to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. In his letter to the Romans, when the Apostle Paul begins to expound the gospel that he proclaimed, he does not lead off with the love of God, as we saw last week. Paul leads off with the righteousness of God. Then he writes in the 18th verse of Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Notice that little word for that begins verse 18. For the wrath of God. So we have to go, what's the for there for? And we go up, go clear back up to verse 15 for a minute. Because we see all these fours. Each part building on another. So for my part, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why, Paul? For because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, there it is again, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God. If we are going to understand why we need God's power, the power in the gospel, why we need his very righteousness imputed to our account, then we need to understand his wrath against sin. If we're not such bad folks, if we have enough good deeds that we can pile up some points towards heaven, then we don't need God's righteousness, and Christ did not need to bear God's wrath on our behalf. But if the wrath of God is against all unrighteousness, if the wrath of God is against all ungodliness, then we desperately need to know how to be right with God. For if we are ungodly and unrighteous in God's sight, if we have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, and as a result we are under God's wrath, then we desperately need God's saving power through the gospel. Now, verse 18 here starts a very lengthy section in the book of Romans on wrath, sin, guilt, and judgment. I'm sure you got up this morning and said, I can't wait to get to church today so I can hear week after week of wrath, sin, judgment, death. And beginning here with verse 18, where we read this morning, until the end of the first chapter to verse 32, Paul gives a general indictment that everyone is guilty. Although the sins that he mentions in this portion may be more prevalent among the Gentiles. And then when he moves on to, to chapter 2, the first 16 verses of chapter 2, he indicts those who think they're moral enough 
They have enough good points. They're, they're good enough people to commend themselves before God, but he indicts them. Then the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Paul turns on the Jews who pride themselves in having the law, showing how they are also guilty before God. And then finally in chapter 3, he, show, he sums it up, showing that the entire human race, Jew, Gentile, everyone is justly guilty before God. Romans 8.23, for all have what? Sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now these verses are not an indictment against certain people or certain lifestyles. They're an indictment against us all. Paul wants to make sure that everybody's included in this. The grand jury has convened, it's indicted everybody, and it's already found everybody guilty. You know, there's no such thing as people who are better off before God because of religion or morality or lifestyle. There's no such thing as people being better off before God because of how they live. And then finally, only at uh, the third chapter, verse 21, after 64 verses, does, does Paul pick up the theme again of the righteousness of God that's available to sinners through faith alone, that a person can be right with God and be clothed in his righteousness. So, we're embarking on 64 verses of wrath, judgment, sin, where everyone stands condemned before God. We'd want to say, come on, Paul, I get it. We're all sinners. <laughs> you made your point with, with one verse. Love is all we need. All we need is, is love. So this morning, I want to give you three reasons why we're going to spend a lot of time in this section of Scripture. And I borrowed the basic idea of these from John Piper. Why we're going to spend these, this time in these seemingly dark, depressive verses in Romans. This is why we're going to spend the next several weeks working our way through this portion of Scripture. The first reason is this. Superficial diagnoses lead to false remedies. Superficial diagnoses lead to false remedies. I want to demonstrate this with a couple of illustrations. You might remember back in 2014, a man went to the emergency room in Dallas, Texas, to a Dallas hospital, with flu-like symptoms. Even though he told the nurse that he had recently returned from Liberia, the hospital sent him home. Two days later, after his symptoms continued to worsen, the same man was finally admitted to the hospital. After performing further tests, the man was diagnosed with the Ebola virus and he was immediately placed in isolation. On account of a misdiagnosis, he was in danger of dying, and he was in danger potentially to thousands of other people who would get the virus. A misdiagnosis. In this section of Paul's later, Paul is diagnosing the condition of the human heart. If it's not diagnosed, if it's undiagnosed, then the sinful person is in danger to himself, and he's also a danger to others. We hear it all the time when we watch the news and we hear what's going on in the world. We think, how could somebody do something like that? How can ISIS be so evil? Why would a teen cyber bully a boyfriend until he commits suicide? With dozens and dozens. Why would anybody text and bully? You know, kids, thousands of kids all over our country being bullied by other kids through social network. Why do people treat others the way they do. The problem is a sinful heart. A sinful heart. And the wages of sin is what? Death. If the human heart is improperly diagnosed, 
then it's a danger to itself. It's a danger to others. Sin always hurts somebody else. Have you ever thought of that? That's the nature of the thing. Now, the second illustration is more personal in a sense, but it has more to do with the remedy to it. We've all had skin knees where our mom had to wash it and scrub it, and we hated that, and it really hurt, and pour antiseptic on it. You know, we'd go through whatever we pour on skin you know, when I was growing up. But uh, I don't remember this, but I've been told about it. When I was a toddler and we were parked, I think I might have been a baby. We were parked at a service station that had a gravel lot. And I was hanging out the window and my mom dropped me. And I fell out on my face onto that, that gravel and dirt. And mom and dad took me to the doctor and he said something like this. We have got to get all that dirt and all that gravel out of all those cuts and scrapes or it's going to get infected and then it'll leave really bad scars. And he told my parents, this is going to really hurt him and it's going to really look bad for a while, but this is the only way. And mom says the doctor took a wire brush. And with alcohol and soap, he got into that. He scrubbed the wounds. He scrubbed out the dirt, the bacteria, the gravel. He tore up all the skin. And all I have now is a little tiny scar on the edge of my nose, the corner of my nose, because he did that. Maybe explain some of the other things about how he looked, but that's <laughs> not the problem. <laughs> Superficial diagnoses don't cut it nor do superficial cures. Sin is a deep-seated malady of the soul. We'll study this section of Romans in great depth because if we're going to find true remedies for a disease and you want a lasting cure for people who are sick, then you need more than a superficial grasp of the disease itself. Those who are looking for a cure or care about a cure for AIDS or cancer or Ebola or whatever it is, they spend almost all their time studying the disease. If we want to truly help people, if we want people to really find salvation and be set free from their sin, we have to know as much as we can about the disease. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that brings us to the second reason we will spend the next several weeks in this section of Romans. Who can understand it? The second reason is this. Understanding sin and wrath will make you wiser. It will make you wiser. When you need healing, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological healing and wholeness, you want to go to people who have a deep and keen insight into your problem. You want to find a neurologist, as we've been doing the last several weeks, that really knows her stuff, or an oncologist that really knows his stuff. These are the people who can help you. These are the people who truly understand and can give you insight and remedies to help you. The same is true of spiritual healings and the maladies of the soul caused by sin. A profound understanding of sin and wrath will make you a far wiser person about human nature, your own nature and the nature of others. I was going to bring it out and I forgot this morning. The thickest book I have on my shelf is a book on sin. It's just called Sin, three letters, and it's that thick, just on sin. 
If you are wiser about the nature of the human soul, you'll be able to fight your own sin more successfully and you'll be able to bless others more deeply with your insight and counsel. Pastor John Piper likes to call these kind of people sages. I like that word. That's an old, Old Testament word that refers to people who become wise. Wise men and women. Of course, the prophet Daniel was one of those sages in in Babylon, one of the wise men, the sages. He says, sages are people who are discerning, they're penetrating. He says they are deep lovers of people. And he says they are deep knowers of human nature and God's nature. He says they are the ones who can see deeply into the tangle of sin and sacredness that perplexes the saints and threatens to undo us. And Piper says, If you run away from the study of sinful human nature, if you run away from the study of sinful human nature, if you say, I don't like to think about sin, he says, then you run away from yourself. And you run away from from wisdom. And worst of all, you run away from the deepest kinds of love. The love of God and the love of others. Then one more reason to study what Paul says about wrath, sin, guilt, and judgment is that knowing the nature of sin and wrath will cause you to cherish the gospel. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I remember in the 70s when Amazing Grace hit the top 10 charts for about the second time in the 70s. It was number one. The person singing it had changed it. Amazing grace that saved one such as I person didn't understand the wretch but he didn't think it hit the top top <laughs> top 10 if he didn't change the words but uh, who was the lady Judy what's her name that sang amazing grace and did such a wonderful job and and didn't change the words number one in the whole world knowing the true condition of your heart and the nature of sin and the magnitude and justice of the wrath of God will cause you to understand the powerful gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ You will love it, you will cherish it, you will feast on it, and you will share it with others as never before. When you get up in the morning in your own devotional time, in your prayer time, or in worship, you consider the depth of your sin, you consider the justified wrath of God and what Jesus did for you on the cross. You are going to love the gospel even more, you're going to love God more, and you will love love others more by sharing the gospel with them. So all of that is a lengthy introduction to the section in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And so we come again to the 18th verse of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For the reigning time today, we're just going to answer one question. You'll see a couple of questions and two or three points on your outline. But we're just going to have time for the first question. What is the wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? Now, when we think about God's wrath, we need to get rid of any human notion of somebody who has a bad temper, who flies off the handle over the slightest provocation. God does not need anger management classes, okay? 
like a lot of people do. You know, when I would play online gaming and we we're playing Call of Duty 3 or whatever it was and those kind of things, you know, there was always some guy who was ticked off at the world and he would start using foul language and those kind of things. And so I would put there on the text everybody can read, you need anger management questions. Then you really saw the guy fly off the handle to the point that uh, the administrator of the game would kick him clear off, and then they would thank me for, for getting rid of that guy. But that's not God's wrath. That's not why he gets angry. God's wrath is part of his holy nature. Part of his holy nature. The Greek word translated wrath is orge, and it refers to, a, to God's wrath that is a settled, determined active opposition to sin. It doesn't refer to the momentary emotional and often uncontrollable anger that is completely different in the Greek. That's the Greek word thumos, which describes human anger. But if God loves righteousness, he must also hate evil. If God were all love and no wrath, then he would not be God at all because he would not be righteous at all. We know this on the human plane. You know, if a judge was all, as one pastor put it, love and hugs. If a judge was all love and hugs towards cold-blooded murders or, the, or in the habit of giving light sentences to ruthless kidnappers and rapists, and we see this on the news all the time, he would not be a righteous judge. Even though our anger easily slips in from being righteous to unrighteous, we know that anger is the proper response to certain sins. Anger is the proper response. In the same way, God would not be holy or good if he did not react to evil with wrath and righteous judgment. We can see this solely by looking at the New Testament. The New Testament starts out in Matthew with the ministry of John the Baptist, who tells these self-righteous religious Pharisees who came to be baptized. John was out baptizing. Thousands were coming to him. And here come the self-righteous religious Pharisees. They just... They just want to go with what's popular. Well, let's go down there and let's be baptized too. And John says to them, You brood of vipers, you den of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, after pronouncing a series of woes on the Pharisees, Jesus also thunders, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Then God's wrath seems to be intensified against the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 15. Not only were they of deserving of hell and God's wrath, but they were leading others into destruction. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Read that. The New Testament over and over again gives stern warning to those who lead people astray. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says that we all, by we all, before we came to Christ, Jews and Gentiles, we were children of wrath. Children of wrath. A Jewish way of saying that we were characterized by being under God's wrath. In Ephesians 5, 6, he uses the same Jewish expression to say, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, Paul says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, 
Let me back up a little bit. I, I turned two pages at the same time. A couple more before we get to Romans. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes that God will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. And then the entire book of Revelation shows the many forms of wrath that will be poured out on sinners both before and after Jesus returns. J.I. Packer wrote in his classic book, Knowing God, in which he, where he has an entire chapter devoted to the wrath of God. And he wrote, One of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both Testaments emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. And A.W. Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, where he has the wrath of God as an attribute, a whole chapter on that, he says, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 acknowledges there's a future day, a future day at the coming of the final judgment, a future day of wrath. But here he's calling attention to the present revelation of God's wrath. The verb means is being revealed, for the wrath of God is now in the present tense being revealed. What does this mean? If we look around, we can see God's wrath and all the effects of sin and the fall, both on creation, on human misery and, and suffering. We see floods, fires, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, famine and disease. We go, why are these happening? They cause untold suffering and death. It is because of the wrath of God against sin. There are more direct links between sin and judgment, such as sexually transmitted disease, the harmful effects of drugs and, and alcohol abuse. We see the terrible effects of drunkenness and drug abuse in our home, on our highways, society at large. We see the devastating effects of war and terrorism. In Baltimore this weekend, they've called for a 72-hour ceasefire. Don't kill anybody for 72 hours. I would not want to be in Baltimore on the 73rd hour. <laughs> Is this really going to work? The list could go on and on. Also, a glance through past history, both in the Bible and outside of it, shows the ongoing wrath of God. He destroyed the whole world through the flood. He poured out fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. He punished both Israel and Judah, allowing invading armies to kill many and send others into captivity. But the greatest example of God pouring out his wrath was when his own son died on the cross, bearing our sins, so that he cried in agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus' terrible death shows that God cannot brush sin aside. His righteous judgment must be satisfied. That's why we sing, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Woe to all who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. Before that day, God will judge the world. God reveals himself through his wrath. Don't miss it. As I thought about this, I thought of, of one more reason, a good reason, why we need to study these verses and understand God's wrath the present revelation of his wrath. 
and this is why we won't get to the last few points on the outline. We'll pick up ungodliness and unrighteousness at another time, the next time. Because what I want to say here is very prevalent and, uh, and necessary for us today. The wrath of God is already being revealed from heaven. That's what Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says. And one of the ways that God reveals his wrath is by giving people over to what can be called the wrath of abandonment. The wrath of abandonment. Three times in, at the end of the first chapter of Romans, Paul says God gave them over. Uh, look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. Uh, verse 26. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And all they, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who, who practice them. This is the wrath of abandonment. It is that wrath exhibited by God where he turns his back on society. To the sons of Israel, God said in Judges chapter 10, You have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. God is saying, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. Turn over to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. The 24th, or the first chapter of Proverbs. First chapter of Proverbs beginning at the 24th verse. Here we see this sentiment given. Verse 24 of Proverbs chapter 1. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a scorn and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof, for they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 17, it's recorded that God said, Ephraim is joined unto idols, let him alone. There comes a time when God abandons men. God comes to a point where he lets a people go, lets them suffer the consequences of their own sinful choices. They will not accept his counsel. They spurn his reproof. And so the proverb says they eat of the fruit of their own choices and they have to be satisfied with the devices they have chosen. 
Of the Pharisees, Jesus said one time, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. The most terrifying words coming from God, let them alone. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. God will abandon sinners to their own choices and the consequences of these choices. And what is the abandoning act on God's part? It's the removal of his restraining grace. He removes his restraining grace. And when God lets go, he turns his society over to its own sinful freedoms and the result of those freedoms. No scripture more directly confronts this abandonment and its consequences as we will see in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. That's why we must study it in depth. But here's the most graphic and most comprehensive discussion of what it means to be abandoned by God, and it's the best passage I know of to explain the moral chaos, the confusion, the violence, the human suffering that we experience in our own nation at this time. God's wrath is already at work in our culture and in our society. We're not waiting for it in America. We're experiencing it. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we are grieved as we look around our country at this time and see the things that are going on as we think of our national history. I think back when it must have been so different in the early days of our founding fathers who wanted so much to make sure that everyone knew there was a God and that God had given a law and his law alone could govern men. Father, we thank you for the godly and biblical principles on which our country was founded. But as I think today of those who on a national level are, are trying to solve the massive, far-reaching problems of iniquity, and they do it without your standard. And in reality, they are given over to the, the curse of their own sin, more sin and more sin, unrestrained, which is running rampant all over our country. Father, all we have to do is look at the chaos in Washington and look at, uh, you know, for us who understand your word, it's one of those spiritual, duh, <laughs> don't you guys get it? Father, I, I thank you that as we heard this last week that the 10 members of the cabinet are meeting for Bible study and to study your word and for prayer. Father, I pray that as they do this, that that will spread because we, we, we see your wrath revealed in our land and all we can do is plead with you that you would be gracious to our country, that you would open up hearts to saving truth, that you would save our leaders, you would save them from their sins and bring them to the foot of the cross that they might bow the knee to Jesus Christ and that the word of God would again become the authority in this land as it reflects the word of you, our creator. Father, I think of what you said to society before the flood, 
My spirit will not always strive with men. And I pray that you would turn the hearts of the people of our country toward you. And may we all in this place this morning, as we look to you, the creator, the lawgiver, the redeemer, who in Christ has purchased our lives for time and eternity. And we ask this only that you may be glorified in your son's name. Amen.